This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue skies, a few cotton clouds, and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. My guest this morning is Tom Bunn. Tom Bunn is the author of Panic Free, the 10-day program to end panic, anxiety, and claustrophobia, which is the result of his many years addressing flight panic as an airline pilot. He's also a licensed therapist and a former Air Force pilot. Tom Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Tonya, thanks for having me on this morning. This is a surprisingly fascinating book. You know, from the title, this sounds like a typical self-help book. I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but most of the book is actually the neuroscience underlying all of this. And I found it utterly fascinating, and I, I really loved the book. Well, you know, I got to tell you, this whole subject has been fascinating to me. Um, as a pilot, 
you get the idea that if people just knew how safe flying is, they'd be fine with it. But there's so much more to it because a passenger doesn't know what's going on. They're not in the cockpit. But there's noises, there's motions. Every time the plane drops, there's a knee-jerk reaction where stress hormones are released. And when stress hormones are released, you get the urge to run. And you can't. You're, you're locked in that plane. And you're 30,000 feet. You're nowhere close to the ground where you have your own two feet to give you control or getting away from some danger. So it's, it's a horrible situation for a panic-prone uh, person. Um, so that was a big surprise uh, for me as a pilot when I started working with fearful flyers. So how common is the experience of panic and, and this extreme anxiety and, and claustrophobia in our society? Well, I, I don't remember. The, it's in the millions. And I, I think probably about 60% of us got the kind of consistent, non-judgmental, loving response from caregivers when we were kids and about 40 percent of us got something less than that and uh, of those 40 percent of us who didn't get the optimal um we have varying degrees of anxiety um you see in order to really develop a self you need someone who recognizes you when you're a little kid as having a self inside and mirrors that back to you. It's very easy to look in the mirror and see your physical self, but how do you see your psychological self? Someone has to respond to what's inside you that you're able to make known to them. And it's the mirroring of that that makes it real for the child, that makes the child feel understood and develops allows the child to develop security that will cause their calming system to see. When you're born, the system that revs you up, that was mature, because any kid can scream bloody murder. But the ability to calm down is not there at all. That's a more advanced, uh, evolutionarily advanced, uh, later advanced uh, developing system. You know, when the baby's born, uh, it's kind of premature. Some animals can, can be born and walk right off. Not humans. Uh, our brain is so large that we have to be born long before it, it's fully developed. So our calming system develops later. It develops in relationship with someone who actually calms you. You see, you do have a calming system, the parasympathetic nervous system, but you don't have any software to operate it. The software comes from repeatedly being calmed by a caregiver. Usually the mom, let's say. So when the child gets upset, the three things that a caregiver does that operates and activates the calming system, the calming, attentive, caring face, mostly around the eyes, the quality of the caregiver's voice. The caregiver may speak words to the baby, or the baby doesn't understand those words, but does pick up on the quality of the voice and, of course, touch. So let's assume that for the first year and a half to two years, when the child is upset, um, someone responds. Now, at around 18 to 24 months, the child's brain has developed to the point that when upset, uh, says, oh, well, mom's in a different room. 
So mom's going to hear me cry, and she's going to come in here. And as the child is waiting for mom to appear, begins to imagine that any moment he's going to see her face. Ah, good, that's great. And he's going to hear her respond to him uh, with her voice, and that helps too. And then imagines that wonderful touch, that delicious feeling of being touched by the mother. When those three things are imagined, that actually triggers the calming system. And if mom does come in and does show her face and does speak to the child and does touch the child, the expectation is reinforced. And then you can see how the expectation then being reinforced, it begins to produce a program so that whenever the child is upset and expects mom to give relief, uh, it gets relief even if mom doesn't show up. But for some of us, um, when we cry and mom does get there and sees that we're already okay, she says, what are you bothering me for? i got other things to do. Walks away, doesn't reinforce it. And that, I think, happens to about 40% of us. And so we don't develop this program that automatically activates our calming system. Mm-hmm. You also talked about something that Alan Shore said, that um, when parents let their babies cry themselves out, yeah, and the effect that yeah. has on them later in life. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it seems a little complicated. It might, the explanation I can give you may be a little complicated, but you go back uh, over 200 million years, the most primitive way that creatures protected themselves was to freeze, to play dead. Um, there are still some insects that if you touch them, they'll roll over on their back and stick their legs up. You know, possums playing dead. You know about that, of course. Yeah. Uh, so that was the original thing. If if you're attacked, uh, just pretend you don't exist <laughs> or that you're dead and maybe the attacker will lose interest. Well, good luck on that. might work, it might not. As evolution continued, then things got a little bit more sophisticated. Then comes in a system that when you're attacked, stress hormones are released. There's the amygdala, the part of the brain that we have that responds to attack or to change. Um, when actually it's not just being attacked. The amygdala responds to any change at all because any change might mean danger. So stress hormones are released and the urge to run is produced. Guess what? The creature runs away. But if we go back to that first system, the immobilization, the playing dead, that's the one that Shore talks about. That's the one that uh, Stephen Porges talks about is the most primitive system. We don't normally use it as humans. Why? Because uh, although it might work for an insect that could lie dormant for months without any trouble because it's got hardly any brain, humans have a huge brain, and we need a lot of blood supply to make it operate. So when we slide into this immobilization state, this playing dead state, the heart rate goes way down. The breathing rate goes way down because this immobilization, this playing dead system is trying to make us look like we're dead. The, the attacker is not supposed to even be able to perceive our breathing, our heartbeat. <clears throat> so when we go into that state, the brain shuts down to a great degree, <clears throat> more than it, 
and it can handle, and we may faint, we may go unconscious, or we may become sort of semi-conscious, and whatever's going on around us is recorded in fragments. And this becomes a problem with PTSD. An ordinary, complete memory, anything you put into your memory, over time fades. If it's a complete memory, that is, who, what, when, where, how, time is part of it, where you are, and so on. That whole thing just fades as a unit. But when you have fragments of memory, it doesn't decay. It goes into a different part of the brain. And it sits there, kind of like something on the desktop of your computer that uh, you just didn't save. It just sits there. And when you uncover it, boom, there it is. Maybe something you, some piece of unfinished work you forgot was even there. Um, but how that turns out to be PTSD is, it, since it doesn't fade and may not have any time code built into it, may not have any location code built into it, just a little fragment, a little flash of something that happened during a trauma. You could be walking down the street and boom, you have a flashback. There's a story about um, when I was at uh, the VA in my internship and, and as a political social worker. They told us about a guy who was a Vietnam vet. He was driving down the New Jersey Turnpike by uh, New York Airport. Helicopter flies overhead. <laughs> you know, the blades. Slammed on his brakes, jumped out of his car, threw himself into a ditch. He flashed back to being in Vietnam. So if we go into this immobilized state, it's problematic because the brain in humans can't handle it. So what Porges and, well, Shore said mainly about the question you asked specifically, children who are put into bed to cry it out. What Shore says is that when you put the child into bed to cry it out, they go into hyperarousal, really revved up. And they stay revved up for a while, but then there's a bounce-back effect. If they can't get relief through being really revved up, then the bounce-back effect is, well, let's go back to the most primitive system. Let's go back to immobilization. Let's play dead. The heart rate goes way down. The breathing rate goes way down. And the baby goes into this frozen state. So what Shore says is when the parents come back in an hour or two later and they see the child asleep, the child is not asleep. The child is in that frozen state of terror. So we tend to think there's no harm done. But when you repeatedly cause a child to go into this frozen state, you then set up the, 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 the trough, the, the channel, for that to happen as an adult when it ought not to happen at all. Yes, and that, that, I would imagine, would be terribly debilitating to our parasympathetic nervous system. Well, it, it, your parasympathetic nervous system it, is just not working at that point. What's, you've gone into a, a system that, that's more, millions of years more primitive than the parasympathetic. But, you see, if the parasympathetic is working, you get relief long before you drop into that situation. I, on this subject, um, Porges, when he, he used to be in Chicago. Uh, he transferred 
to uh, a job at the University of North Carolina where he was teaching psychiatry. Uh, shortly after he was there, he was lecturing uh, about how you can slide from uh, ordinary consciousness, you can go into a state of hyperarousal, and then you can go from hyperarousal down to this shutdown state. And he says, when you go from hyperarousal into the shutdown state, you do not do it by choice. It just comes over you. And once again, it comes over you probably if you were subjected as a child to crying it out. So after the lecture, uh, of said a young woman in the class came up to him and said, thank you so much for what you told us today because I'm a feminist and my mother was sexually assaulted when she was younger. And she didn't fight back. And I was always, always angry at her and didn't forgive her for not fighting back. Now I realize she didn't have a choice. She just went into immobilization. She couldn't do anything. She was like a deer in the headlights. It's really fascinating how our early life experience really determines the way we respond to events that happen to us as adults and and it's all programmed in at the unconscious level and so i'd I'd really love for you to talk about how our nervous system the the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems work in relation to that unconscious programming and how we can learn to reprogram our nervous system because you say that and and also therapists talk about how you can you can create a secure attachment even in adulthood and and you can you can reprogram your nervous system to to downregulate um hyper arousal and, and yeah yeah well i think the first thing to look at is the revving up system um you know, like your car, you have an accelerator pedal, and you push on it, more gas goes, and the engine revs up the engine. The system that revs us up is uh, called the sympathetic nervous system. <laughs> I'm amused by the, the, the name. They say it operates in sympathy with stress hormones. When stress hormones release, it then causes your heart rate to go up and your breathing rate to go up and all this stuff. Um, so... The other thing that's interesting about the amygdala, it's got some things that, uh, it, by the way, that's the part of the brain that's responsible for releasing stress hormones. Um, it has some things that's genetically programmed to react to, such as loud noises or falling. Uh, S-shaped things on the ground. If you're walking in the woods, you might suddenly freeze in your tracks not knowing why, and then look down and see a vine or look down and see a snake. If you see a vine, you might think, gee, how stupid am I? But if you see a snake, wow, boy, am I smart. I just save myself from getting bit. So, yeah, okay, so there's a few things it reacts to automatically. But the amygdala also reacts to change, virtually any change. It doesn't have to be danger at all. So when the amygdala fires off because something changed, something happened that's not expected, it causes the release of stress hormones. Okay, so now we... Though from, I think, from what we were talking about earlier, when stress hormones are released, it causes the urge to run away. Okay, so far so good. But there's a lot of false alarms because the amygdala reacts to 
all kinds of things that are not dangerous. So Porges says, let's go back a couple, couple of hundred million years when, when reptiles were the most advanced creatures. They had an amygdala. That's about all they had for a brain. Uh, they say that uh, the brain of uh, the largest dinosaurs is about the size of a, of a dog. Not very much brain. A lot of amygdala, not much brain. Okay, so let's say that a Tyrannosaurus rex is at a watering hole, and um, everything is the same. The, the other creatures around there he's used to. His amygdala has seen them before. He, the, the, the surroundings are familiar, so the amygdala is not doing anything. And then a, um, a potosaurus shows up. Well, an apatosaurus, that's the one you see in the uh, Sinclair, old Sinclair uh, gas ads, the graceful-looking dinosaur uh, with a long neck. Um, he shows up. Well, that's going to make the Tyrannosaurus rex's amygdala far off, and he's going to run or maybe decide to fight. Well, the apatosaurus is no danger because he's a vegetarian. Nevertheless, the amygdala's going to fire off cause the urge to run or possibly fight. Now, um, the point I really wanted to get to is when the, at, that, at that level, 200 million years ago, it, it was a one-trick pony. It make the fires off, urge to run, you run. When mammals came on the scene, now this is according to Porges' rundown on this, mammals come on the scene, and now you've got a huge addition to the brain, the cortex. So now, when the amygdala fires off, you still get the urge to run, but the stress hormones activate the thinking part of the brain, which says, hold off, don't just run automatically. Now you've got a brain. Don't act like a chicken with your head cut off, because now you've got a head, a real head. It's got real brain here. So let me take a look before we just go off running for no good reason. So that's kind of where we are when stress hormones are released. We get the urge to run, but our high-level thinking, we call it executive function. Executive function says, nope, hold off, let me inhibit that urge to run while I took, take a look and see what's going on. Now, some of us inhibit that urge to run so well that we don't even know we have an urge to run happening. It's not conscious. Some of us don't inhibit it very well, and so every time we get some stress hormones, we feel the urge to run, and if we don't have an easy access to get out of here, we have a panic attack. So that's kind of introducing the basics. Now, if you can figure out that what fired off the amygdala is benign, then you say, okay, no problem. So let's go back to the airplane. Let's put a person on an airplane and, and the plane drops. There's a knee-jerk reaction when the plane drops. And so the person's going to think, okay, I'm feeling this urge to run, but I can't get out. That's not good. But am I safe? Well, here's where it can't be resolved and a panic attack could happen. But look at the possibility that comes in with what Porges calls the social engagement system. What if you have a friend sitting next to you and you turn to your friend and your friend says, it's okay. And their face looks confident. And their voice sounds good, and they might even hold your hand. That's calming. So that's great. But really interesting research 
came out a couple of months ago from the University of Arizona. They took 102 students who were in romantic relationships. They split them into three groups to do research on them. The first third of the group of 102 people, um, actually, they put all of them under stress with wired up to see what kind of response they had. And the stressor, it was interesting, put one foot into two inches of 38-degree temperature water, cold water. <laughs> okay. It doesn't sound bad, but a couple of people dropped out of the research study. Uh, okay, so the first group, one by one, with their foot in the water, wired up to see what their response was. They said, while your foot is in here, distract yourself by thinking about your day. So let's see how good distraction helps you. The second group, they said, think about the person you're in this romantic relationship with. The third group actually had their romantic partner physically present. Now, what I was saying to you, you're on the airplane. You've got someone physically present with you to come. So you would think that that would be the best solution on the airplane. You would think that would be the best solution for putting your, your foot into two inches of 38-degree water. That would be the most effective. It turned out that the people who simply thought about their significant other, they did just as well. So that tells us what we can do on the airplane. It tells us what we can do with panic. We can use the memory of being with a person who is responsive to us to take care of ourselves on the plane, to take care of ourselves off the plane. And that's the key thing to stopping panic that's in the book, a panic-free. Because you can actually train yourself to automatically not panic, by linking another person's face, voice, and touch to a situation that's going to stress you, like going across a bridge, through a tunnel, being in an MRI, being in a dentist chair. But you can also link it simply to arousal. Remember, going back to the little kid, 18 months old, gets upset and expects mom. For the next two days, what I suggest to your listeners, for the next few days, instead of trying to not be aware of stress when you feel it, Look for it. Try to pick it up at its lowest possible threshold and level. And as soon as you notice the stress, don't do anything except imagine your best friend walks into the room, says hello to you, and comes over and gives you a hug. So do you see what you're getting? Your friend, your friend comes in, there's their face. Their face has these signals that activate your calming system. They say hello to you, the quality of their voice, the second thing that activates your calming parasympathetic nervous system, and they come over and give you a hug or whatever is appropriate for your relationship. That's where the touch or body language comes in, the three things. So if it's like most people, today you're going to get upset a few times, tomorrow a few times, and then after you've done this a few times over the next few days, it's going to become a built-in program. And there we come to the thing you were asking about, the system we call unconscious procedural memory. Uh, when when you first learned to drive a car, you had to concentrate. It took a lot of concentration. Still, it might not have worked out very well. But as you continued driving, it got easier because a part of your brain was taking over some of those things that you had to do to drive, particularly for the system where you had to use the clutch and gears and so on. Uh, but as you learned to drive, it became completely absorbed by your memory. 
what we call unconscious procedural memory. So that nowadays, when you get your car, you can be driving down the road and have a conversation. You're driving the, the car on autopilot. That's the part of the brain we want to be taught to bring in every time you get stressed, your friend's face, voice, and touch. So that automatically you get calmed down. Which is a good thing because you can think much more clearly when you're calm and deal with whatever the unusual situation is than if you stay wrapped up. Yes. I This morning, oddly enough, or synchronistically enough, I do, I do cold showers at the end of my shower. That's that's my way of waking up in the morning. And as I turned on the cold water, I invoked a social engagement memory. Mm. And I did it con- mm. I did it consciously in the moment. I I I had succeeded in in programming my unconscious proced- procedural memory enough to remember to do that at that moment. Ah, yes, yes. But my question... And now, my yeah, cre- and the whole thing is going to get built in so that every time you get a cold shower, you're going to be taking that cold shower with your best friend. Okay, now this is the question I have. Am I in... Once I've programmed that, in, that experience, that association into my unconscious procedural memory... Will I actually remember my friend, or will I just experience the the comfort of my friend? I, probably, you'll just experience less stress. Okay. I don't expect that you would actually remember bringing that person's... I, I, see, it's like, I guess it's like driving the car. There's... There's things that you do now when you drive the car that you used to be conscious of, you're not conscious of anymore. Or I think about a sport like uh, tennis. For example, doing a serve in tennis is extremely complex. And so you practice it hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times to get good at it. Um, But now that you're in a tournament and you throw up the ball and you're going to smack it across the net, you don't remember what it was like being with your coach you forgot your coach who was there teaching you how to do it. So I think when you get in the shower, at some point, maybe not initially, but at some point, you're just going to feel okay in the shower. You won't remember how you got to the point of feeling okay, which is kind of the nice thing about how it works on the airplane. You see, people sometimes say, well, I'm going to be on the plane. I'm going to have my significant over, uh, other with me on the plane. I say, well, yeah, okay, it's great that they're with you. It's great that they're sitting beside you, but they're more effective if they are inside you because inside you, you've linked them to the trouble. You've taken, for example, the feeling of the plane dropping, and you've linked their face, voice, and touch to the plane dropping. So when the plane drops, that's going to be taken care of at an unconscious level, and you may not even be aware there's anything to be taken care of. So they literally... So you may get into the shower... And, and and you just begin to say, gee, you know, I didn't, it used to be I didn't really like cold showers, but I kind of like them now. So we're literally programming those comforting people into our parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah. Now, you know, I, this is in the book, and, and it, to me, I, I, I got to tell you, this, this was a lifesaver for me as a kid. Um, 
Last night, my wife and I watched a movie called uh, The Fortunate Man. It's a, um, a story about a, a guy who was raised in an extremely abusive, extremely religious family. And I kind of, my family wasn't abusive, but it was extremely religious. And it was like every thought I had, my grandmother would say, what would Jesus think? Everything I did, they would say, what would Jesus do? It was yeah, kind of a heavy way to, for a kid to grow up. But I had a friend who worked for my grandmother in her business, and she had a florist business. So when it was raining, he didn't have anything to do out in the garden. Uh, he was about eight years older than me. He was a, a, a black uh, kid and teenager. I was about eight years old. So we'd go sit on the front porch and watch it rain. Sometimes it was cold. We'd cover it with a blanket. We'd just sit there. His name was Ennis Merritt. Um, and in the south, in the those thunderstorms, the whole street would just become a puddle, and the rain would hit the water and jump up, and Ennis used to call them jumping jacks. We'd just sit there. So the thing is that Ennis just accepted me without any question. Didn't judge me in any way. Totally different than everybody else in the family. Years later, I'm in the Air Force in Germany. It, was, it wasn't enough, I guess, just to be flying the world's most dangerous fighter. I had to buy a race car, too. I had something to prove. If, if, if somebody told me you had something to prove, I said, no, no, I just want to race. But it, it was it was, it was was a kind of a crazy thing to do, but I bought a race car. And in Europe, when you when it rains, they go ahead and have the race. They don't cancel it like they do here. And so most drivers are terrified of driving when it's raining. So I was in this race, and it was raining. And I thought, oh, this is really nice. And so it was kind of like being back on the front porch with Ennis, totally accepted. So here it was in this race, which makes other drivers really so nervous they may not be able to function well. To me, it, it was great. And so it was a big advantage to be able to have it rain and bring Ennis, not consciously to mind, but the effect of him in the rain came not to mind, but actually kept the parasympathetic nervous system active during the race in the rain. I'm, I find this all so fascinating, the way... Um, you know the the interrelationship between our nervous system and and our our early life experience and i maybe this is a good time to bring up something that i experienced as a child which has affected me on rare occasions in in my adulthood as a child i had what was called childhood asthma uh-huh. but i but from reading your book, I suspect that those were actually panic attacks because I was unable to breathe and that uh-huh. it's not really related to what's classically considered to be asthma. And this occurred right after my parents got divorced around the age of three. And, wow. yeah. Yeah. and on rare occasions, I experience extreme claustrophobia where I experience extreme constriction in my breathing and I, I go into panic. And this is usually just from imagining being buried alive uh-huh. or, or in 
in physical reality when somebody pins me down and I can't yeah. escape? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Here's what I guess you could do with it, because you've got a, a, a visual conception, a conceptual experience to go along with it. In doing this exercise to link it to calming, um, it would be better if you, instead of just picturing being pinned down, for example, um, put it into the life of a cartoon character. Because we know from watching cartoons, they get into awful situations. They always make it out. There's no dead cartoon characters. So let's say that Homer Simpson or Charlie Brown or Lucy or Linus or somebody, they're being held down and they can't escape. I don't know who's holding you down. You can make it up if you want to. But you take that experience of the cartoon being character being held down. Now, let me let me set that just set that aside for a moment. Do you recall in your own life a time being with someone where you felt your guard let down? Yes. Okay. Yes. Let's imagine that you are with that person right now. The reason I'm saying guard let down, that's when you get maximum activation of the calming system. So now what this means is that particular person is giving you really good signals from their face, voice, and body language or touch. Let's imagine that your friend has that cartoon by their face. Picture your friend's face. Notice their soft eyes. And right by their face, they're holding this cartoon of the cartoon character being held down. So the safety signals from your friend's face mostly around the eyes, are now getting infused into the subject. The cartoon characters dealing with being held down. Okay, that's linked up. Let's go to the next thing that we want to link to, the quality of their voice. Let's figure that your friend holds a corner of the cartoon. You hold a corner of the cartoon of the cartoon character being held down. You have a conversation with your friend about it. Now, what your friend says might be helpful intellectually, but the thing that's really helpful emotionally is the quality of your friend's voice as you talk about this being held down. Not you. Not you being held down. But Homer Simpson, Charlie Brown, Snoopy, some other character. And then as you're talking about this cartoon character's misfortunate situation, um, your friend puts their arm around your waist and gives you a hug. So you, that, that's one of them. And then you've got two or three others that that you can put into a cartoon character's uh, life, link up so that you see, you like to have an anxiety-free experience if you're trying to stop anxiety. So that's why we use cartoon characters. Okay, so there's there's stopping or there's preventing an anxiety attack or a panic attack, and then there's the issue of stopping it as it's starting to happen, or perhaps while it's in the process of happening? Yeah, yeah. The thing is that if you can get the trigger and the antidote to it repeatedly done consciously, it's like, remember, you were driving your car, learn to drive your car. That's all conscious. But as you do it, it gets absorbed by unconscious procedural memory. Uh, for example, I don't know if you ever studied 
any uh, any dance. I studied ballroom dance for a while. So you go and your instructor gives you step, 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 maybe six or seven or eight steps. You do it again and again and again until it becomes, they, they call it body memory, uh, but it's really unconscious procedural memory. Your body is certainly part of it. And then the next lesson, you've got that one installed in your unconscious procedural memory. You learn another eight, and then the next lesson and so on. Until finally, you can, after a few weeks, you can go to a, a ballroom, and with your partner, you can go moving around the dance floor effortlessly without thought. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking for is to effortlessly, without thought, cut down the anxiety, because... Everything you do on the dance floor is already built in. Everything you do in the dance of your daily life is, is linked to being with that person whose face, voice, and touch calms you. It's like being on the racetrack and having Ennis's memory unconsciously making me feel comfortable in this crazy, dangerous situation. This is so fascinating that you can use a cartoon of somebody else having that experience that, that we're afraid of and just linking that image to something that's calming or that activates yeah. our calm our our calming response and that will that will actually program us un- unconsciously program us to to diffuse any any yeah. arousal that would otherwise be caused by that Incident. Yeah, the, what happens with uh, people I work with now on fear of flying is we take a couple of dozen things that are going to happen on a flight and link them up to common experiences. And we take also the things they're afraid are going to happen on the flight and say, that's too hot for us to link just with a little photograph. Let's go to the cartoon characters to defuse it. And then we take the things that happen on panic. In panic, we want to take each of those physical things and defuse them, neutralize them. So they get on the plane, and they don't think it's going to work. Because after all, what we're used to having work is stuff we can consciously do, something we have actual physical control over. We don't trust anything that's unconscious. So I say, look, you've got good stuff to link to. You're going to be okay. They get on the plane. They don't think it's going to work. And some of them don't get on the plane. But the ones who get on the plane, to their amazement, they the plane taxes out. They think, gee, I should be having a panic attack by now. I'm, what's going on? This is weird. I'm okay. So they go through the flight moment by moment, expecting, based on past experience, that they should be totally freaked out now. What is going on? Why am I not, I'm not feeling anything? It, it's very mysterious, but this is so powerful. And if you go back to that thing with the University of Arizona, where thinking about their significant other was as effective as having them there, as it turns out, when it comes to dealing with stressful situations, once we can establish this link, it's more helpful to have them built inside, fighting for us, than to have them sitting beside us trying to help us consciously. So we're really using the power of, of emotion and feeling to override another emotion or feeling-based experience, as opposed to trying to use our intellect or reason to override an emotional experience, which, which you you make very clear in the book, doesn't work that way well, because our emotions are so much more powerful than our 
Yeah, well, you see, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not absolutely sure whether it's the positive emotion overwhelming the negative emotion. I think it, I think it happens at a level before emotion takes place. Yeah, I, I wasn't um, thinking of it overwhelming yeah. it because I don't. Yeah. I was thinking of it. You, you program in the positive emotion so that yeah. it's present. A positive experience. Bef- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah. It's present before an arousal gets triggered. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for example, um, for males, a time when you produce oxytocin as orgasm, um, nature's trying to. Well, oxytocin does two things. It, it shuts down the fear system, but it also causes bonding. So what nature's trying to do here is to get the guy to feel bonded to his sexual partner so that he sticks around in case there's a, 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 a child born as a result of this. Uh, last year, I had a, I was doing a phone session with a fear of flying client who had first read my book on fear of flying, and then he was in the video course. That There's always a counseling session included with the video course that I did. And so he said, well, after he read the book, he hadn't had a chance to practice the exercise that the book and the course teach you to make it automatic. So he was on a flight and he said it got turbulent and he got really, really frightened. And he remembered the book talking about how sexual experiences produce oxytocin. And so he said, Tom, it was really charming what he said. He says, Tom, I, I really want you to not misunderstand me. I'm happily married. My wife and I get along great. He said, but for some reason, there in this turbulence, I started thinking about my girlfriend. We had the hottest sex you could believe. And he said, I started thinking about her, and the fear went away. And he said the turbulence lasted for an hour, and he kept replaying his adventures with his ex-girlfriend. And he said the fear completely disappeared for the entire hour. So now that's where he does it intentionally, but what we're looking for is to not have to do that much work. Do the work ahead of time, do the preparation, and uh, let it work automatically for you. Yes, and I find the whole concept and 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 thing about oxytocin to be utterly fascinating, and that's pretty recent. That's very recent science. They're, well, the, the, the person who... It's it's been, it's, you know I mentioned Steve Porges. He's the guy who came up with this amazing thing about how we trigger the the calming system. His wife is Sue Carter. Uh, she's head of the Kinsey Institute now. But earlier in her career, she was the person who became the leading expert in the U.S. on oxytocin. And uh, hanging out with Steve a few years ago, we got a chance to talk to her, and she said that if you pre- her research on oxytocin said if you administer it artificially, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. But when it when you get it naturally, you do. You know that naturally it's going to calm you. But she said when you, some of her research was with a little creature called a prairie vole. She says if you inject oxytocin into a male prairie vole, at certain times it'll make him gentle and loving. At other times it'll make him aggressive and violent. She says you don't know. But naturally, we do now, so that's the good thing. Yes, and and originally, um, it was known that mothers 
experience oxytocin when they're breastfeeding. And then yeah. gradually it expanded to sexual experience and then even beyond that to to long um, heartfelt hugs and, yeah. and and connecting with other people, even yeah. even with our pets. Yeah, do you remember Temple Grandin when she was in uh, college? She uh, realized that being solidly hugged calmed her. So she said she built this contraption that she kept in her room. The way I think conceptualized, it's kind of like a huge thing that was hinged and, and a rope that she could pull. So she could use this device to give herself a hug, not with a person, but with a two-by-fours and plywood. And and she said that she, the school thought she was so weird they kicked her out of school. But she was onto something. You see, those solid hugs, if it's from a machine, will, will cause oxytocin to be produced. Wow. That, that, that sounds counterintuitive to me. Well, it, it, the thing is that the body maybe doesn't know whether it's a person giving the hug or not. And, you know, uh, Temple Grandin was on, on the spectrum, on the autistic spectrum, so it might have been more just as effective for it to be a non-person producing the physical compression. Right, uh, as it would be for a person to have done it. I'm not sure about that. Right, but I thought it was amazing that that she. We were talking about how hugs with another person would produce oxytocin, and it, even even the hug that she could cause to happen herself through this contraption would produce oxytocin for her. Yeah, that that's a pretty creative um, yeah, adaptation. Really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's an amazing person. Yes, fascinating work she's done, and yet to get inside the experience of somebody who has a, a different way of relating to the world can can often yeah. expand our, our understanding of the way things work and, and what's possible. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the way that most of us are wired up, um, we can respond to a person's face, voice, and touch. But by the way, you know, some, some of us don't read others very well in that regard because of early trauma. That's another side of this matter. Yes. Why don't you talk more I, about that? Well, I, I was just thinking that some of the times when I, I for a few minutes ago, I asked you if you'd had the experience of feeling your guard let down with a person. It's not so rare. I, sometimes when I'm asking a client that, they say, no, I've never had that experience, or they don't know what I'm talking about. They've never had the experience with another person where they were these signals that came across actually caused calming for them. Not at least not to that level that that, that the vagus nerve was was fully activated. Well, let let's talk about the vagus nerve. That's that's an area of Stephen Porges's work, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what he focused on, and that that's a fascinating thing. There. I've read about studies where people who do years of meditation, they found that, that the vagus nerve is actually strengthened and physically, physiologically thickened. Mm -hmm. How does that work, and what is the vagus nerve, and, and how does it work, and how is it integrated into our nervous system and everything? Well, Porges's theory is that there are two vagus systems, what he considers the old vagus system, 
was the system that would cause immobilization. It would cause you to play dead. It would cause these creatures to just shut down so that maybe they wouldn't get attacked by a predator. But he believes that in humans, there's a more advanced vagal system that, instead of just causing shutdown, will reduce the heart rate, uh, reduce the breathing rate, and tell the digestive system if it's on alert and shut down because of an emergency. Hey, you guys, go back and just do what you normally do. The emergency's over. Um, the vagus nerve is the longest nerve in the body. It's the nerve that the parasympathetic nervous system uses to signal the body to go back to normal. Now, his research, though, that brought this theory to fruition, his original research, apparently when he was in grad school, he was studying what, what's called heart rate variability. That is, when you breathe in, you've got a new supply of oxygen in the lungs, your heart speeds up to transport it around the body. Well, three or four seconds later, it's mostly transported the new oxygen, not much new in the, in the lungs, is used up. So you breathe out. Well, the heart doesn't need to beat that fast now while you're breathing out, so it, the vagus nerve is activated, slows the heart rate. So you might think, well, the vagus nerve speeds up the heart. No, it slows it down. Porches says the normal heart rate without the vagus nerve involved is around 80 beats per minute. But when the vagus nerve is stimulated, it pushes the heart rate down to about 60. So when he was studying this, his idea was that the vagus nerve is not always the same in every person, particularly earlier in life, and particularly even more particularly with preemies, because the vagus nerve is not well developed. And he thought, well, this research he was doing might have some impact on sudden infant death syndrome. Um, because the vagus nerve might be activated and cause the heart to just stop. That is, that was what the old vagus could do. Not the new vagus, apparently, in his theory. Anyway, that's just maybe to the side. Um, so as he had his research subjects hooked up to his equipment to see how much the heart rate went up when they breathed in and how much it went down when they breathed out, when they were just sitting there and a friend would walk by, Boom, the heart rate goes down. He thought, what's going on? Wait a minute, this is not part of my theory. So it became his new theory, what he calls the social engagement system. Porges' social engagement system is the idea that when we're with other people, they send us signals that they don't know they're sending. We pick up those signals and we don't know we're picking them up, yet they have an effect on us. So maybe I could say something about I think everybody knows about this. If you see dogs interact with each other, they sniff each other out to determine whether they want to play or fight or mate or just ignore each other. They sniff each other out. We sniff each other out unconsciously through what's coming across from their face, what's coming across from the quality of their voice, and what's coming across in their body language or touch. And it has an effect on us, which we may not even be conscious of, except we may notice we're more comfortable with some people than others. But that question I ask you, have you felt your guard let down? When you feel your guard let down, you can be sure that the person you're with is, you see, you, you don't do it intentionally. You can't do it intentionally. The other person is causing it to happen. And so when you feel your guard let down, you're getting really high quality 
safety signals from the other person's face force and touch. Right. And I'm speaking with Tom Bunn. He's the author of Panic Free, the 10-day program to end panic, anxiety, and claustrophobia, which is the result of his many years of addressing flight panic as an airline pilot. He's also a licensed therapist, a former Air Force pilot, and his website is www.panicfree.net. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. All of this stuff is so fascinating, and you talk about a lot of other related topics in the book. Um, you, you talk a lot about reflective function and how it relates to psychic equivalence. So I'm wondering how psychic equivalence fits into this panic issue and where reflective and the importance well, of reflective function. Yeah, you see, back years ago, doing fear of flying work, what I noticed is people would go into their imagination that the plane was in trouble, when of course it was not at all. And and so I talked to them about going into your own movie, as if, okay, you go to a movie with a little kid, six or eight-year-old kid, it's a Disney movie, and you know the Disney movies, the the, the animals get lost, they're never going to get back home. So there's the little kid you took to see the Disney movie, and then tears. What do you do as an adult? You say, honey, it's just a movie. So one of the things I tried to do was to help people get out of their imagination, back to what's really happening. Now, the psychic equivalence is kind of the same thing. It's a term used by Peter Fonagy, who's a well-known uh, analyst in England, who's a major theoretician in, in psychotherapy. Um, he, the way I understand what he's saying is this, that right now, as we're talking, you are hearing what I'm saying, I'm hearing what you're saying, listeners are hearing what we're saying. That's perception, right? But as we talk, we're reminded of things, and we may remember something. Or we may imagine things. Now, we can generally sense whether what we're doing at any particular moment, if we become mindful of it, we can, we can actually think, oh, yeah, I'm remembering something now, or I'm perceiving something now, or I'm imagining something now. So you know which mental mode you're at, kind of like on a computer. You might be doing web search, or you might be writing a document. You know the difference. Well, your mental activity, ordinarily, you know which kind of mental activity you're engaged in. Um, for example, if I look out the window uh, back in the winter, uh, uh, I, if I looked out, I could see there's no leaves on the trees. That's perception. If I remembered back in October the beautiful colored leaves, that would be memory. But what if I used imagination and says, okay, I'm going to come up with imagining the leaves are all purple right now. That's creative. Now, okay, what happens on the, on the airplane and what happens in panic, for example, as you mentioned, having trouble breathing or having pounding heart uh, or having tension? If you imagine that that's danger, it might not be danger, but if you imagine it's danger, you might produce stress hormones. When you produce stress hormones, 
your ability to do reflective function, that is, notice what kind of processing you're doing, starts to fade. And as it fades, you're not aware of it's fading because if reflective function fades, you would need reflective function to see that it's fading. So it's a catch-22. As it disappears, you're not aware that it disappears. But what happens as reflective function disappears, which ordinarily would let you sense whether you're perceiving or remembering or imagining, what happens is that everything in your brain, everything in your mind that you're aware of becomes thought of as perception. So what is imaginary now is experienced as perception. What you're remembering is experienced as perception is happening now. So when people got on the airplane and they imagined that the plane is falling out of the sky, it released stress hormones, their imagination then would become their reality. You have pounding heart, it releases stress hormones. You have the imagination that maybe you're having a heart attack, but once the stress hormones hit, your imagination becomes your reality. I'm having a heart attack. Or with uh, uh, difficulty breathing, uh, I'm suffocating. Well, you, you're imagining that you're suffocating. But if you trigger stress hormones as a result of maybe I'm suffocating, you, you, you're sure you're suffocating. And that's where your panic comes in. Right. You see, the panic thing is a life-threatening situation, and you can't escape. Those are the two things about panic. Yes, the escape part is 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 like the critic critical element of of the panic experience. Yeah. And you give a lot of examples of of people going into situations, particular like the example of people who are afraid of heights. You you yeah. tell a story about going out onto a balcony in Italy with a woman, and she goes into a total panic as soon as she gets out on the balcony. And even though she could just turn around and, and walk back off the balcony, because she goes into this full-blown panic, she doesn't even remember that she has that option of escape. Yeah, that's, that's one of the really fascinating things, is that the whole thing is imagination that's taken over. And when you think you might be in danger um, and, tr and trigger the release of stress hormones, you're sure you are in danger. Well, I've got to escape. But when you have shifted into this mode where of psychic equivalence, uh, now the question becomes your, your mind is so fried that you can't even figure out how to escape. You see, and that was one of the problems with, with the panic on the plane, is that people, I, I try cognitive therapy for years, trying to get cognitive to work. But what happens is when they start to go into panic, they got no cognition available to do cognitive with. So here's this person that I'm with. It was actually at, uh, on the uh, Basilica at, at Venice, where you go up on this balcony, you look out over St. Mark's Square. It's, I thought it was a fabulous scene, so that's why I took her there. And she got out there, and it was for her, it was overwhelming. It's too much, too much. Um, the way I would look at something, I would look at this thing, I'd look at that thing, I'd look at the next thing. But for her, it all just rushed in. She didn't break it down into bite-sized pieces. It's like you go to McDonald's, you normally get a Big Mac and take one bite at a time. For her, it was like going to McDonald's and I take a Big Mac and shove it down her throat. She's too much, too much. So here I had shoved Venice down her throat 
And she said, get me out of here. But she, because she couldn't even figure how to get out because she was so overloaded. And that's one of the things that can happen in panic. If you don't have an escape door right in your face, you can't even remember to turn around and find one behind you that you came in to this place. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting correlation to that kind of experience at a, at a much more subtle level where we have this tendency to believe that we are right about what's happening in reality. And if anybody yeah. else has a different opinion or thought about it, they're, they're dead wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Farnegie makes the observation. He says that uh, people who have a negative self-image may have no more, in terms of number of thoughts, they may have no more negative thoughts about themselves than a person who has positive self-image, it's just that they believe them. When their negative thought comes to mind, they produce stress hormones. The stress hormones turn what is just a thought into a reality for them. Uh, let, let me just go into an example that, that's used for explaining psych, uh, psychic equivalence. First of all, this ability, reflective function, the ability to look at your thought process so and see what kind of thought processing you're doing. He says it's a hard-won uh, achievement. Uh, it starts to be achieved at around age three. So at around age three or four, uh, the child makes amazing discovery that not everything in his mind might be real, which is kind of magical because now you can engage in, and pretend, which is fun. Um, so let's say you got a four-year-old kid, and the kid's playing with a two-year-old kid. And the four-year-old kid says, let's pretend we're in the jungle. And there's lions and tigers, and they're dangerous, and they're going to try to chase us and catch us and eat us. Oh, there's one now. He's after us. Run! So the four-year-old kid can have fun with that because he knows that these dangerous animals are made up in his mind. He knows they're not real. So he can be excited by the thought, but he knows he's not going to get eaten. But the two-year-old kid doesn't have psychic equivalence yet. Whatever's in the two-year-old kid's mind is real as far as he's concerned. So even though the two-year-old kid at the behest of the four-year-old kid put those tigers in his mind, he doesn't know he put them in there. He doesn't know the four-year-old put them there for him. Uh, so for him, those tigers are real. He's about to get eaten, so he goes running to find his mom to get saved. So that's an example of how the, the two-year-old kid goes into psychic equivalence. See, the problem is, once we get enough stress hormones, we all go into psychic and whatever's in our mind becomes our reality. Hmm. You tell a story about your daughter and her imagination of a panther under her bed. Yeah. Could you tell yeah. that story? I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's my daughter, Kari. Uh, she, <laughs> I, I put her into her bed and, and covered her up and, and started to leave. And just as I was leaving, she said, uh-uh, uh-uh, come here. There's a panther in the closet. Oh, right. <laughs> and I thought she was just trying to stall me to keep me around. And I said, what do you mean it's a panther in your closet? She says, he's, he's in the closet right there. So, okay. So I play along with her, I think. I thought I was playing around along with her. So I go and I open the door and I look in there, look around, and 
pretend I'm looking around and say, hey, Kari, I don't, I don't see any panther in here. And so she's kind of goes along with that. And then I close the door. And she says, so I start to walk out. She says, he's still there. <laughs> <laughs> so I go look again. And, and, he, and I start to leave to try to get her to go to sleep. And I want to go watch TV or something. <laughs> and she says, the panther's still there. So, all right. So, Kari, come on, get out of the bed. Let's go look in the closet together. So we open the door of the closet. We look all around. She can't show me the panther, you know. So I'm assuming that she knows now that the panther's not there. She goes back in the bed. I start to walk out. She says, he's still there. I said, come on. I I don't know where this came from. But suddenly I had this thought that, okay, the panther, there's a panther in the closet. What are we going to do about this panther? He's not going to go away. I said, what if we take the panther out of the closet and he walks over and he climbs in bed with you and you snuggle up? And she says, oh, that would be fine. And so she was okay with that. So she took the things she was afraid of out there at the distance and brought it and embraced it and perhaps thought about it being warm and fuzzy. And she was okay with that. And I kind of think it's, it's interesting that it's so many things that we are afraid of and try to push away if we bring them in and embrace them. We become okay with them. I think in a way, like meditation is teaches us that. We try to push thoughts away. And if we do meditation, we become able to accept the thoughts, the things that we don't even want to know or true about ourselves. If we go ahead and let ourselves become aware of the things that we don't want to believe or true about ourselves, we get used to them. And that's kind of what therapy is. Right. There's practices that are connected with meditation practice for people who have issues with with thoughts and feelings that, that trigger them to to actually make friends with those thoughts or those feelings, the, the very things that we're most afraid of, to actually turn the relationship around just as you did with your daughter. Yeah. Now, speaking of meditation, I, I know that I'm maybe treading on tricky ground here, but I'm concerned about meditation that's used as an escape. When you're doing meditation, just using the same word over and over and over again, you're trying to get the mind occupied with something that you have total control of and to keep everything else away. I don't think that's helpful. The kind of meditation I think that's helpful is where you, you know, if you went to an aquarium and watched the fish swim by, they go around and around, and they come by, and you see them, and then they pass. And if you can let the thoughts come in like that, if you can set it up in your mind that no matter what starts to come to mind, I'm going to let it come to mind, and I'm not going to judge it, and just let it come in, and the swim past, and then slide on out. I think that meditation is valuable, because it's not an escape. It's becoming aware of what is available inside you to be aware of and becoming friends about it, kind of like Kari becoming friends with the tiger in the, in the closet. Mm-hmm. And we think about the, if the mind is like that panther in the closet, we've got a lot of potential panthers in there, things we don't want to know about ourselves, and, and we spend a lot of time and energy trying to be unaware of stuff that uh, is really part of ourselves. We can become friendly with these aspects of ourselves that we reject, life becomes a lot more peaceful. Exactly. Actually dealing with the issue 
at the causal level as opposed to just the symptomatic level? Yeah, you see, many times people say they, they're having these thoughts about their plane crashing or that they're going to have a panic down their plane or they try not to have these thoughts. I try to say, look, the idea here is not to control your thoughts. The idea here is to let yourself have the thought, but not have it become a problem that you're having the thought. Mm-hmm. How is anxiety different from panic? Well, with anxiety, you have an escape. You may not like the, the, what you'd have to do to get the escape, but, but you figure, I, I don't like what's happening. I'm afraid what's happening, but there's a way out, but it would be costly. Um, for example, I had uh, a guy who said that he had found really good results from the, what we'd done with flying, but now he was dealing with a situation at work. He had taken a new job. He was now a supervisor. Um, when he was in his former job, he was working at the same level with a group of people. Those, in that situation, he was getting signals from his, his uh, companions at work, his co-workers that uh, were calming to him, face, voice, and touch of other people. But when he became a supervisor, nah, he was now the boss, and, and he was not getting calming signals from the people he was supervising. So lacking the internal resources to calm himself, uh, he, he needed other people, but he wasn't getting it. He was anxious. Um, so he said, well, he was thinking about quitting his job, and but he said, I, I moved here to take this job as a supervisor with more pay, but I feel like going back to my original job. I, so he was anxious, but you see, he could go back. He did have a way to go back to escape from his stressful job back to his previous job. So I think anxiety is like that. You, you, you know, There's something you can do, but it's not necessarily a, a good idea. Well, what happens in panic is you have anxiety and you can't escape. Or you believe you can't escape. And do you use... Yeah. Okay, continue. Well, I, yeah, I, I was just thinking about when I was in the Air Force. Um, I, I sat around the, at lunch talking to three other pilots flying uh, the F-100, which was a really dangerous airplane. And, and three out of the four of us, we were talking about what really frightened us about flying the F-100. Well, the fourth guy said, you bunch of candy asses, I'm not afraid of this airplane at all. And I walked away from that lunch kind of with my tail between my legs thinking I just wasn't cut out of the same stuff that this guy was because he said he was totally fearless. I knew that I had fears, especially flying the F-100. It was a dangerous plane. It killed uh, over 300 pilots. It was a it was the first supersonic plane. They didn't know how to build one, but they built it anyway. It's just a wild machine. Anyway... A year later, uh, we get a new airplane, the F-105, much better airplane. But this was in Germany, so we had to get our airplanes across from the U.S. to Germany. And this guy, along with some other pilots, volunteered to go back to the U.S. and pick up uh, four of the planes from an Air Force base in Mobile, Alabama. Now, for this flight back across the Atlantic, they put on an extra tank on the under the belly of the plane. It only cleared the ground by maybe six or eight inches. So Jim, this guy, he takes off in at, at twilight uh, from Mobile, Alabama. And being a hot shot pilot, as soon as he got the nose up and the plane just barely coming off the ground, he slammed the gear handle up. And the plane just 
grazed the runway with this tank, and it caused the tank to leak. So there was a trail of jet fuel from the tank going behind the plane. Well, in a jet fighter, when you take off, you use the afterburner, so there's actually a flame coming out of the exhaust pipe. You don't see this in airliners, but except for the uh, the, the supersonic plane, the uh, the one that used to fly. Um, so the afterburner has a flame coming out. Well, it lit off this fuel. Well, as it turns out, it was like a blowtorch. The flame was behind the airplane, separate from the plane. The plane was not in danger. But the tower called the GM and said, uh, you're on fire. And what happened was that every fighter pilot is trained to hit the panic button when you're in trouble to hit a button and it takes those tanks that you're carrying, which are heavy with fuel, and, and it fires them off the plane. So now your plane becomes much lighter and much more maneuverable. So this is something that's built into you. But in this case, Jim froze and he just tried to leave the tanks on. He didn't hit the panic button. He tried to just turn the plane and get back on the runway. Just was panicked and had to get back on the ground. What they found out in the accident investigation was that every that Jim had never learned how to swim. And that every time he was supposed to have this swimming test, he would end up going to the uh, um, infirmary and claim he was sick. So he had escaped all his swimming tests. He was afraid of water. What happened was he took off over water, had an emergency, and totally froze. Became immobile and crashed and got killed. So here's this guy who claimed to be fearless. Now, we talked about how we don't let ourselves know stuff that's inside us. So when we block an area and claim it doesn't exist, take off over water, suddenly this thing that you claim doesn't exist catches up with you and causes them to be overwhelmed and end up tragically. So you, you also you talk about the five elements of a panic attack, how they begin yeah. and and then become full blown. Yeah. Um it's kind of like uh, if you went to uh, a department store and bought some imitation pearls, you know, 20, 30 bucks. If you break the strand, you're going to have those beads flying everywhere. Uh, but if you go to a jewelry store and spend a few thousand for some really fine quality cultured pearls, those beads are delicate. And, and uh, so when they string them, they put a knot between each pearl so they don't rub against each other, but it also serves the purpose, if you break the strand, you're only going to have one pearl come loose. So, what happens with panic, it seems, is that you might start with pounding heart, and then that lead to difficulty breathing, and that leads to tension and sweatiness and so on. Or you might start with tension, and it then creates the difficulty breathing. And, but anyway, it's kind of a chain reaction. You start with one thing, the first thing triggers the second, the tr second triggers the third. So, to stop that chain reaction, we want to take each element of the panic attack and neutralize it, such as with the face, voice, and touch of your friend, or with a moment that produces oxytocin, or both. So, once again, we go to cartoon characters to make sure that when we do this exercise, it doesn't bother us. So, for pounding heart, uh, I use Clark Kent. Clark Kent, who can become Superman, gets on an airplane, 
on the ground. In fact, hey, you know, I kind of hope something will happen so I can show off. So anyway, <laughs> the plane takes off and something does happen, but not something that Clark Kent can deal with. He realizes someone on this plane has kryptonite. I can't become Superman. So it starts to panic. And let's say he has the whole slew of things that would happen in panic, but I just want you to use him for one thing. Use him for pounding heart. Why? Because with cartoons, um, cartoonists to show pounding heart have this kind of standard way of doing it. So let's imagine that Clark Kent has huge red, bold exclamation marks drawn on his chest, maybe 18 inches tall, big, bold, red exclamation marks. And then alongside his chest, on each side, some vertical lines, slightly curved, slightly apart, and that's supposed to show that the chest is getting bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller, but it's just not. So there's your, there's your cartoon. You got it? Mm-hmm. So now, let's go back to your friend you were talking about, who you felt your guard let down. And imagine your friend has that Superman having a panic attack, pounding heart. Just the pounding heart part. So your friend has that pounding heart cartoon by their face. So you look at their face, you look at poor Clark Kent having his pounding heart. And uh, the two things get connected. The safety signals from your friend's face, the pounding heart now seems less of a threat. Okay, now you hold the corner of the cartoon, they hold the corner of the cartoon, talk a little bit about it. Your friend's voice, the, the signals and the quality of their voice that says, Everything's fine. Nothing to be worried about. That gets infused into the pounding heart. And as you're talking about it, your friend puts their arm around your waist and gives you a hug. So you see how we diffuse pounding heart. Mm-hmm. So if you start having a panic attack, the pounding heart stops right there. It doesn't lead anywhere else. And we want to do the same thing with rapid breathing. We want to do it with sweatiness. We want to do it with psychological changes. We want to do it with uh, tension. One we use for tension is Bruce Banner starting to turn into the Hulk with all that body tension, tension turning green, uh, is is something to link also to your friend's face, voice, and touch. So this is these are really just tools to to break the chain. Yeah, yeah, to put a knot between each of those beads that the panic attack is composed of. Mm-hmm. Could you give your website and how people can contact you if they're interested in working with you? Sure. Um, the the website for the uh, for the book, panicfree.net, not com, but net, panicfree.net. And for that, that's intended for panic any place. But for a person who's dealing mainly with flying, maybe they do only have panic uh, in, on the airplane, fearofflying.com which is easy to remember, just fearofflying.com. And we have a lot of resources there that are free. And every Wednesday night, we have a one-hour party line kind of chat. You can join and talk all this stuff over. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. I love the book. My sense is that the book alone would be sufficient to help anyone deal with genuine panic attack issues. But I understand sometimes people need to have their hand held during the process. And the science in this book is utterly fascinating. So even if you don't have a panic issue, it's an utterly 
utterly fascinating book. So thank you so much for your time and for this work that you've done. Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's really an exceptional opportunity to get the word out because, you know, people who've tried everything believe nothing's going to work. But the problem is that we're trying to, to do it intellectually when it, the problem is really a matter of emotional regulation that's supposed to take place at an unconscious level. Yes. And I realize I can actually apply this to a lot of other areas in my life. So again, I'm, I'm so grateful for this book and your work. Tom Bunn is the author of Panic Free, the 10-day program to end panic, anxiety, and claustrophobia. And again, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tonya. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.